views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, Cast Media, or the Invisible Choir podcast. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. He is very cold. He is very calculated. He is very intelligent. The news media is an entity that is often criticized. It's also one that most of us are consumed by on a near daily basis, at times resembling a train wreck that we simply cannot take our eyes off of, one that we keep coming back to as if we're curious to see what the aftermath of the crash looks like, whether politics, current events, or of course, crime. These are the topics most of us are inadvertently glued to, especially with the advent of social media. Terms like fake news become hashtags and travel at the speed of light. Whichever ideological side or biased outlet you turn to, almost all of us have had something negative to say about the way these matters are portrayed at one time or another. Hell, a big part of what we do here is cleaning up the mess of conclusions that reporters have hastily jumped to before gaining all of the facts in an effort to break a new story first. What we as the public tend to overlook and perhaps underappreciate, however, is that sometimes the media does get things right. Keyword being sometimes. Back in 2011, a story released by the Capital Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland would be an example of this. When a crime committed by a local man was publicized by the paper and online, an unbiased, factual, and forthright article completely within the respective legal bounds of journalism. A story which, ordinarily, would have blended in with several others on just any other ordinary news day. Criminal records are almost always synonymous with the public record. Sometimes the truth hurts, and not all press is good press, especially in the eyes of a criminal. The idea of freedom of speech often walks a thin line, swaying back and forth between one's civil rights and the cause of potential danger in this country, in more than a few cases we've covered. But this one in particular is unique. Unique in the sense of the lengths and extensive planning one man would go to clear his name. A man's attempt to expunge what he felt was a defamation of character. When incessant cyber harassment turns into real-life action, it wouldn't be the media the public would blame, but instead, it would be the police. While years of threats were turned a blind eye to, one man's plot for revenge had nothing but time to blossom. Those that he had felt wronged him actually did see it coming. But when law enforcement was of no help early on, they were left hopeless, waiting for tragedy to inevitably strike. The setting is Maryland. The year is early 2010. A woman who has chosen to remain anonymous is sitting at her computer when she receives an unsettling and unsolicited Facebook message. For all intents and purposes, we'll call her Lori. The following transcript has been slightly altered or summarized for the sake of comprehension. Hello. I just want to thank you for being the only person to ever say hello or be nice to me in high school. Lori was taken aback. For one, she graduated high school over 13 years ago. And two, she didn't recognize the name that had just popped up on her inbox whatsoever. Jared Ramos. He reached out to me to ask if I remembered him from high school. I replied to him nicely that I did not. That's okay. It's me, Jared. Jared Ramos. The mysterious man on the other end then sends Lori a flurry of photos to direct her messages in an attempt to jog her memory. But still, nothing. This wasn't ringing any bells for Lori. She couldn't seem to recall who this man was for the life of her. She then types his name into a Google search 
and learns that they did indeed graduate together from Arundel High School in Gambrels, Maryland, back in 1997. As it was in Lori's caring and compassionate nature, she began to engage more in random conversation with the individual, knowing at the very least this man did go to high school with her, regardless of how unmemorable he truly was. The dialogue was relatively friendly at first. However, Jared Ramos quickly crossed boundaries, confiding in Lori, a woman he didn't know at all, that he was going through a difficult time in his life. The kind-hearted woman on the receiving end of this news figured perhaps the man just needed someone to talk to, an ear to be lent or a shoulder to lean on, and that he just didn't know where to turn. What's the harm in responding to someone online that just might need someone to listen, she thought. But what she didn't know is that her mere response to this man would spark his strange interpretation of her willingness to engage with him as an invitation to incite a slew of messages on a near constant basis. Hey, are you there? Hello, Lori. Lori quickly became overwhelmed with the amount of messages this man was sending her. Not only could she not keep up with what he was saying, she began to feel uncomfortable, believing this man had somehow confused her goodwill and warmth for a relationship or friendship that simply never existed. Things were beginning to grow out of hand quickly, and Lori didn't know how to appropriately respond to the countless DMs, most of which seemed increasingly desperate. The one-sided exchange went on for months with no response from Lori. She quickly realized the help this man needed was much more profound than anything she was equipped or willing to provide. After all, she didn't even know this man, and she began to worry about his true intentions. Hello, why won't you answer me? After realizing that ignoring this man wasn't helping him get the hint, Lori decided to message Jared Ramos on Facebook one last time. She requested that he kindly cease all communications with her expressing her concerns and the unsettling nature of their interactions. He said, F you, go kill yourself. You're going to need a protective order. The harassment had gone on long enough, and the once friendly discourse now turned vulgar and threatening. By April of 2010, Lori was still receiving messages from Ramos, but the tone had shifted drastically. You can't make me stop. I know all these things about you. I'm going to tell everyone about your life. Have another drink and go hang yourself, you cowardly little lush. Don't contact you again. I don't give a f you. By this point, Lori had blocked Ramos in an effort to terminate all connection to him. But he was relentless. Jared created several new Facebook accounts and continued to send inappropriate and unsavory messages. He would then find other public profiles, personal friends of Lori's, where Ramos then found unrestricted and visible comments from Lori, engaging with people she actually knew. He would then comment under those posts, slandering her and even attaching screenshots of their conversations in an effort to humiliate her. Comments were quickly deleted, but Ramos wouldn't let up. The constant harassment went on for nearly a year, and the issue escalated to a very real-life sense of fear in Lori, after Ramos somehow found out where she worked. Ramos emailed Lori's supervisor at a local bank branch where she was employed as a teller in town. The man spouted hateful untruths attacking her character and urging the branch to fire her. He diligently followed up with a phone call to the bank to make sure his messages were well received. Lori remembers this as the moment she truly began to fear for her safety. I would be afraid that he could show up anywhere at any time and kill me. As a result of whatever Ramos's false claims and reports had been to her employer, Lori was placed on probation at her job. Her supervisor only divulged vaguely that this was, in fact, a direct result of Ramos's calls to the bank. A few months later that September, Lori was coincidentally laid off without receiving any further explanation. She was essentially terminated, never offered her position back, and was now unemployed. After learning that Ramos was certainly the cause of this, 
she decided to contact the police. This seemed to keep Ramos at bay, and while the messages ceased, the silence was only temporary. In the back of her mind, Lori likely knew her actions may have only angered a clearly unstable man. January of 2011, the harassment resumed tenfold, but much more aggressively than before. Ramos continued creating fake Facebook profiles once the previous ones had been blocked or disabled, again commenting on the pages of Lori's friends. He'd leave comments under photos referring to her as, quote, a bipolar drunkard who led a double life. Lori hadn't entertained or responded to the man in over a year now, and it was clear that Ramos somehow felt romantically rejected when he spewed yet another creepy comment in regards to Lori's inability to, quote, let a man get close to her. Clearly, this man had no clue and was delusional in thinking any sort of interest had ever been directed his way from Lori. For some reason, he thought the best course of action to perhaps get a girlfriend was to harass and threaten women he didn't even know when he didn't get what he wanted. It soon became evident that local police would be no help in this matter. Lori then decided to take it upon herself to press charges against Jared Ramos. She requested a peace order and a hearing was held as a result. A tall, skinny man sporting a ponytail was soon required to appear in court, but refused to comment during the hearing. Judge Jonas Lejeune ultimately ruled in Lori's favor, and 31-year-old Jared Ramos pled guilty to a misdemeanor harassment charge for his online misconduct. He avoided a 90-day stint in jail by doing so. Ramos was also given a no-contact order and was required to attend therapy. After his conviction was handed down, Lori did stop hearing from Ramos, but it wouldn't be the last time the public would hear his name. Unfortunately, this was only the beginning of Jared Ramos's tirade. His target would pivot from a woman he barely knew to an entirely separate group of innocent individuals after an article was published entitled Jared Wants to Be Your Friend by Capital Gazette Newspaper in Annapolis, Maryland. July 31st, 2011. The Capital Gazette releases their Sunday newspaper with the headline Jared Wants to Be Your Friend. The article was written by journalist Eric Hartley. It was well-written, concise, truthful, and matter-of-fact. While Ramos was a factor in the piece, mentioning his misdemeanor charge and cyber-intimidation efforts toward his former high school acquaintance, Lori, its message was mainly geared toward the dangers of mediums such as Facebook when it comes to sexual and general harassment online. The story recounts a condensed version of what happened to Lori and the legal consequences Ramos had faced as a result. However, 31-year-old Jared Ramos didn't see this journalistic effort as constructive as perhaps the rest of the city had. On the contrary, in fact, the article infuriated him. He confusingly believed that he was somehow the victim in this case, and that the reports of him slandering Lori's name online were false. Ramos believed the article had caused harm to his reputation, when in actuality, the writer was simply reporting the news that day pulling from criminal conviction records which had already been made public. Ramos saw the article as a personal attack. With his attention now off Lori, he focused his newfound resentment towards the Capital Gazette as a whole. Roughly one year later, Ramos decided to sue the publication for defamation of character. He was relentless in his pursuit, attempting to seek damages. The issue would be dragged out in court for the next few years. And in true narcissistic fashion, Ramos, with no legal background to speak of, thought it prudent to represent himself in the case. On the advice of his esteemed counsel, i.e. himself, Ramos made the poor decision of discovering and utilizing Twitter around that same time. Naturally, his foray into this new social media platform would only be to his detriment. He created his own account on Twitter and had grown seemingly more comfortable typing out threats 
now geared towards the Capital Gazette writers and staff, instead of a woman he barely knew. As opposed to Facebook, where he'd already seen legal repercussions, Twitter was uncharted territory for Ramos. The social media site already had a reputation for having less censorship in regards to the 140 characters allowed to be sent out into the virtual ether per post. While the lawsuit was ongoing, and after multiple appeals were dismissed several times, Capital Publisher and Editor Tom Markwart contacted the Anne Arundel County Police when he began receiving personal threats himself from Ramos. However, no action was ever taken by the authorities. Tom Marquardt retired soon after, in December of 2012, though it's unclear if the timing of his retirement had any correlation to the threats made by Ramos. But in 2013, Marquardt consulted with the publication's attorneys in regards to filing a restraining order against the man as he was now concerned for the safety of his former colleagues. He had reportedly told authorities, quote, This is a guy who's going to come in and shoot us. We're left only to believe that Ramos did play a role in Tom Markwart's departure from the paper, especially after unearthing this letter, addressed to Markwart from Ramos a month before he retired, dated November 4, 2012. The letter was simply entitled, Stop It. Drivers see speed cameras and adjust their habits. They are much less aware of the law, which the Capitol has surely publicized. These enforcers are merciless but only if you exceed the speed limit by 12 miles per hour or more. A speed camera is not a stop sign, nor reason to slam your brakes and proceed unnaturally at 12 below the limit. But cameras do funny things to people, what we wish to get away with if only no one else ever knows. A guilty conscience is a mighty force. One can drive us to quite strange things and otherwise explicable behavior. It's a rare find those securing themselves living and dying at a speed limit plus 10. Which is the more dangerous deviance? Who do you expect to crash and burn? Ramos tweeted the same day with a screenshot of the letter attached with the caption, quote, Think long, evil Tom. You'll still choose wrong. The names in which Ramos chose for these Twitter accounts were unnerving to say the least. The first being at Eric Hartley Friend spelt F-R-N-D, a strange abbreviation yet an obvious jab at the writer of the 2011 article. His bio for the account read as follows. Dear reader, I created this page to defend myself. Now I'm suing the shit out of half of A.A. County and making corpses of corrupt careers and corporate entities. February 9, 2013. Ramos, otherwise known as at Eric Hartley Friend, tweets this. Damages will be high. I am unpredictable. I was Evil Tom's high-value target, and I know your testimonies and secrets. February 27, 2013, at 5.43 a.m., Ramos tweets, The column about me is off search engines, because they know they are guilty. At Capgas News and trying to mitigate. Too fucking late, assholes. A month later, on March 24, 2013, at Eric Hartley Friend posted to Twitter once again. Blood in the boardroom tomorrow, at Capgas News. Somebody has to sing the interrogatory. Nobody wants to. Fake publisher? Lying editor? Step up. It probably isn't the best course of action to be sending these types of vile tweets at the very organization you're currently suing, the day before you're due back in court. Yet, Ramos continued tweeting, all throughout the defamation lawsuit he brought against the Capital Gazette. In 2015, Ramos's lawsuit was officially and finally dismissed. Circuit Court Judge Maureen M. Lamasnay ruled in favor of the Capital Gazette, stating that Ramos's complaint was, quote, a fundamental failure to understand what defamation law is, and more particularly, what defamation law is not. After all of the tweets and years of harboring his anger against the Capitol, Ramos had lost. 
The resentment he had only grew inside of him since the article was published in 2011. He continued to use Twitter as his digital diary, expressing all of his grievances to anyone that would listen. Ramos was somewhat careful in the language he used online during this time. While his tweets were aggressive and erratic in nature, he wasn't stupid by any means. Aside from his correspondence with Lori, which led to his misdemeanor charges, Ramos teetered meticulously on the line between free speech and harassment during the four-plus years of his lawsuit against the Capital Gazette. We're only left to believe this is why police were unable to take further action at the time. Be that as it may, after the lawsuit was dismissed in 2015 and Ramos failed in representing himself after pretending to be a lawyer, whatever small sense of control he was clinging to behind his keyboard was surely now out the window. It was around this time we start to see less of a filter in Ramos's online ramblings, and his actions would only become more bizarre, irrational, and frightening from here. November 19th, 2015, Jared Ramos tweets, In anticipation of forthcoming rape and murder, I am now officially more famous than Jared Radnich. The tweet is accompanied by a screenshot of renowned pianist Jared Radnich's name typed into Google, with Jared Ramos's name listed directly underneath the search history. On December 23, 2015, Jared Ramos, or at Eric Hartley Friend, replies to a tweet from the real Eric Hartley by stating, quote, Eric Thomas Hartley knows from experience, but doesn't appreciate how bad it can get. Journalist hell awaits. February 7th, 2015, Ramos writes, I'll enjoy seeing at Capgas News cease publication, but it would be nicer to see Hartley and Marquardt cease breathing. These sort of unabating and ceaseless tweets continued for months and months on end. After five-plus years of habitual harassment and tweets from Ramos, it seemed to consume his everyday life. In October of 2016, an alleged second alternate Twitter account entitled at Judge Moylan Friend was created, believed to have been made by Ramos as well. Judge Moylan, whom the handle was named after, was one of the judges involved in Ramos's defamation suit. This Twitter account bio read as follows. This is a war. There are no grandstands on the battlefield. One does not die royalty, a nobleman, or a commoner. You die as the loser. It's unclear if this account was made by Ramos himself, but its contents are eerily similar to his past writings. The account's profile photo was an image of Judge Moylan, with the brand of sacrifice insignia crudely photoshopped and overlaid atop his forehead. The brand of service, not to be confused with the Canadian death metal band, derives from the Berserk series of manga or Japanese comics and graphic novels. The significance lies in the theme of the brand of sacrifice, which in the novels marks, quote, the anointed for the invocation of doom, a sacrificial ceremony in which those consecrated by the laws of causality transcend their humanity resulting in the creation of an apostle or a God-hand member, as well as severing an apostle's last ties to humanity, otherwise referred to in the books as ritualistic murder, offered up to the creatures of darkness. With all of these now very clear threats and blatant warning signs directed toward the Capital Gazette, one would think police would have intervened by now, but they hadn't and all reports of the numerous letters, tweets, and Facebook posts were all essentially ignored by authorities. Of course, hindsight is 2020. Everyone was just hoping that Jared Ramos would go away, but Capital Gazette employees and former staff knew this wouldn't be the case. that followed, things seemed to quiet down a bit. Jared W. Ramos's last visible tweet was sent out in 2016, and business over at the Capital Gazette newspaper carried on as usual. No more letters in the mail, 
no more notifications of verbal abuse online. But this would only be the calm before the storm. After nearly two years of unsettling silence, Ramos would emerge again, only this time in physical form, from behind his keyboard and desktop computer. On June 28, 2018, at approximately 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon, an unfamiliar white male with long brown hair and a goatee standing at a height of 5 feet 10 inches tall, weighing approximately 170 pounds, is seen walking through the halls of the Capitol Gazette office at 888 Bestgate Road in Annapolis, Maryland. Neighbors of the shared office building witnessed a man carrying a long gun and wearing a backpack. And there was a man. Uh, there was a man who was holding a, a, a shotgun, a, a black shotgun, and he had it up. He had it braced against his chest, and he was moving through the lobby. He was moving through the lobby of the Capitol Gazette office, pointing the shotgun deeper into the office. He then reached into his bag and deployed a smoke bomb in the hall wall. His gun was up. He was moving laterally. You know, he was moving while aiming into the office. And I mean, he looked like someone who was comfortable holding that weapon and, and, and was aiming it towards things with the intent of shooting. At approximately 2.34 p.m., shots rang out. Initially, I thought it was fireworks. I heard a pop and I turned and looked over my shoulder toward the, the front of the room, toward the entrance. And I saw some faces that looked concerned, but I, I couldn't see any shooter or anything. I saw that the glass doors uh, that opened up into our office were blown out. And then I heard a second pop. And after that, I still wasn't positive what was going on, but I was afraid enough to grab my keys and I, I ran toward the, the back exit of the, of the office. Anthony Messenger, an intern at the Capitol Gazette, was only four weeks into his position at the paper when gunfire and smoke filled the newsroom office. When he ran to the back entrance with colleague Celine Sanfelice, they both quickly realized the door, which was usually never locked, would not open. It was jammed, and as soon as that happened, that signaled to me, okay, this is intentional, those are shots. I quickly recognized, oh, this is a malicious situation, he's here to do harm to us. And we immediately ran and got under the one of the desks in the far back corner of the office, and we just huddled as close as we could to each other and tried to stay out of sight of whoever it was that was in the office at the time. While the two huddled under a desk, Anthony did call 911, but was careful not to speak, leaving the phone to pick up the multiple rounds of gunfire being let off at close range. I called the police as soon as we got under the desk, and I was not able to talk to them. I didn't feel that I could do it in a manner that wouldn't tip off my our position to the shooter. Several shots have been fired, uh, possible uh, shotgun, at least 10 shots heard. From there, I decided to text my friend. I said, hey, please call the police, like I'm in trouble. After I did that, Celine's with me and her phone was at her desk. In that moment, I, I thought I was gonna die. I thought we were going to die. So the only thing I could think, only solace in that moment was, here, Celine, you can have my phone. Text whoever you need to text, contact whoever, whoever you need to contact. And she texted her mother. I'm not sure if she texted anybody else. Celine did indeed text her mother, presuming it may be the last time she'd ever speak with her again. She then quickly opened Anthony's Twitter application on his phone and tweeted out the following message at approximately 2.43 p.m. Active shooter, 888 Bestgate. Please help us. But in that 10-minute span from when the first rounds went off, several other employees would not be as lucky as Anthony and Celine. The suspect was firing a 12-gauge Mossberg 500 pump shotgun. After blowing out the glass doors of the Capitol Gazette's entrance, he began shooting at any and everyone inside of the office indiscriminately. The gunman shot through the glass door to the office and opened fire on multiple employees. Courts and crime reporter for the Capitol, Phil Davis, tweeted this live during the shooting. The newsroom of 11 employees scattered and hid underneath desks. 65-year-old journalist Wendy Winters rushed toward the active shooter with a trash can in one hand and recycling bin in the other trying desperately to disarm the man. Wendy was unsuccessful, as the lanky gunman cocked his weapon once and fired as she lunged toward him. After the sounds of gunfire seemed to have stopped, police were already on the way, but one more 911 call would go out when the gunman decided to take cover underneath a vacant desk, calling 911 dispatch himself. This is your shooter. The shooting is over. I surrender. 
Police were already on scene, and ATF quickly entered the building. The suspect was discovered hiding underneath a desk, was apprehended, and placed into handcuffs. Police retrieved the shotgun lying nearby on the floor. After examining the weapon, a note was found protruding from the grip of the Mossberg. It was a quote, said to have originated from Oklahoma City bombing accomplice Terry Nichols, but was more or less a ripoff from American artist and cartoonist Scott Adams. The note read, quote, There are very few problems in the world that cannot be solved by clear and concise communication. The remaining problems can be solved with the proper placement and application of high explosives. The man initially refused to identify himself, but as others took cell phone footage from the adjacent office building windows while the individual was being escorted to a nearby police cruiser, it soon became evident to almost everyone who the shooter was. These people have been taken out. Whoever's been injured uh, has been taken out to the hospital. All we have right now, uh, Jim, is some very basic reporting that came out of the Anne Arundel County EMS a while ago saying that there are four fatalities, so we know that much. In the span of just 17 minutes, four lives were tragically lost, and one woman was still hanging on for dear life. 34-year-old sales assistant Rebecca Smith was in critical condition and rushed to the nearest hospital. The others were all declared deceased on the scene. Over 170 people were escorted out of the building safely during and immediately following the shooting. As rumors ran rampant and local and national media outlets rushed to conclusions, reporting that the gunman had mutilated his own fingertips in order to withhold his identity, the Capital Gazette reported some breaking news of their own. At approximately 12.12 a.m. in the late evening hours following the brutal attack, at CapGaz News, the same account that Jared Ramos had virtually berated from the safety of his computer chair for the better half of a decade would send out this message. Yes, we're putting out a damn paper tomorrow. Friday, June 29, 2018, the Capital Gazette kept their promise and issued their paper in the wake of the horrific events that occurred at their office less than 24 hours before. The opinion page, usually filled from top to bottom with articles from various journalists, was left entirely empty, aside from a short commemoration that read as follows. Today, we are speechless. This page is intentionally left blank to commemorate the victims of Thursday's shooting at our office. Gerald Fishman, Rob Hyacin, John McNamara, Rebecca Smith, Wendy Winters. Tomorrow, this page will return to its steady purpose of offering our readers informed opinions about the world around them, that they might be better citizens. The Annapolis Police Department would hold a press conference that very same day. Just a couple things I want to confirm before the chief gives some information. Uh, I, I can't stress enough some of the things we've been seeing on social media and all the emails that I've been getting. Uh, the information about the suspect's fingerprints being mutilated, absolutely untrue. We have no idea where that information came from. Uh, so we're not sure who started that. Absolutely untrue. There was no alterations to his fingerprints whatsoever. Another quick update, uh, along with the five deceased that have been already been identified, we want to identify the two people that were injured and have been treated and released. That's Rachel Pacella and Janet Cooley. Rebecca Smith would succumb to her injuries soon after arriving at the hospital. Wendy Winters courageously lost her life while confronting the gunman, but gave the shooter a moment of pause, allowing several Capitol employees the opportunity to flee, saving the lives of her fellow colleagues as a direct result of her selfless bravery. Three others would tragically lose their lives that day. Writer and editor Gerald Fishman, age 61. Writer and assistant editor Rob Hyacin, age 59 and sports reporter John McNamara, age 56. All of these victims are survived by children, wives, husbands, and friends who are left with a gaping hole in their hearts. Men and women who were loved by their colleagues and were the masters in their craft of journalism. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry to see you here today. I can confirm for you at this time that we identified the suspect with help through other investigative techniques by using facial recognition technology. We were able to use that and a couple other techniques to make sure we knew who the bad guy was. I will not say his name today. 
I refuse to do it. I wish you wouldn't do it, but I know better. He doesn't deserve us to talk about him one more second. And while Police Chief Timothy Altamari was certainly correct in stating that the man who committed these atrocities deserved no further press, the perpetrator was indeed the man the Capitol Gazette feared for years, 38-year-old Jared W. Ramos. Although they had the right man in custody, Ramos added insult to injury by not speaking to police, never once divulging his identity willingly, instead leaving it up to law enforcement to figure out just who exactly this man was. He did manage to complain of a leg cramp due to his Tyvek suit being too tight and also asked for a cheeseburger. Neither statements were paid much attention to. Even with the suspect withholding his name, it wouldn't take long for authorities to realize that the man captured on the chilling Capitol surveillance footage was the same man who begrudgingly murdered five people that day. Ramos would be charged June 29, 2018, and was now facing five counts of first-degree murder. Here's CBS correspondent Chip Reed, just after police had conducted their press conference, explaining what lies ahead for accused murderer Jared W. Ramos. Well, we expect him to appear in court. You know, there are cases where uh, they appear on video or they waive their right to appear, but we are uh, uh, anticipating that he will probably be in court today. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, certainly, I think the odds of him being released on any kind of bail or bond are, are uh, infinitesimally small. It's not clear what the judge will do, whether it will be a quick proceeding. One thing to keep in mind, he has been charged with five counts of first-degree murder, but there is no death penalty in Maryland. It was abolished five years ago. It's one of 18 states that have no death penalty. I'm sure this will result in some people calling once again for the reimposition uh, of the death penalty. But at this point, that is not an option. But I think you can expect that to pop up again in the public debate and perhaps in the uh, legislative debate. The expectation would be that the prosecutors are going to push for a life sentence, probably life without parole. As concluded during the hearing, Ramos would indeed be held without bail. He was also deemed a flight risk as he represented an obvious threat to the general public. Ramos's lawyers were already preparing an insanity defense, planning to show that their client was not criminally responsible for his actions. While his first appearance in court was underway, police had obtained a search warrant for his apartment in Laurel, Maryland. What they found would be damaging to any insanity defense his attorneys could muster up. They discovered a destroyed computer hard drive, as well as a drawer filled to the brim with ammunition, extra magazines, and dummy shells, which police believed Ramos had used to practice loading and reloading his shotgun. While being held at the Jennifer Road Detention Center in Annapolis, Maryland, before his trial, Ramos received numerous infractions for hoarding bags of feces, which he in turn used as weapons, throwing them when retaliating against other inmates. He was placed on suicide watch during this period. On April 29, 2018, Ramos officially entered his plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. He was ordered to be evaluated by the Department of Mental Health at a pretrial hearing on October 21, 2019. The judge ultimately ruled that Ramos was in fact fit to stand trial, that he was legally sane, and that proceedings would finally begin under these pretenses. Due to the overwhelming amount of evidence to sort through, as well as delays related to COVID-19, the trial was pushed back and paused several times. While the logistics were being worked out, family members and loved ones of the five victims were left to grieve, hanging in the balance, awaiting justice. Hundreds would come together at the Maryland Hall, filling the auditorium to capacity for Wendy Winter's funeral service, to pay their respects to the woman who gave her own life to defend her friends at the Capitol Gazette. Wendy's children were of the first to speak. My mother's life has been stolen from us. My mother's life has been stolen from all of us. She died fighting for what she believed in. My mom is an American hero. My mom picked up her trash can and her recycling bin, and she charged at a coward who shot her in the chest as she rushed him, slowing him down and giving the police time to arrive. Friends and colleagues of Wendy would follow, expressing their sense of great loss. 
she didn't have the official training, she didn't have the official background, but she had humanity, and that's what she delivered to the paper every day. My world, our world, will be infinitely smaller without Wendy. And I'm glad she was a part of it, and I'm glad to call her my friend. Wendy Winters won several awards while she was alive for her journalistic efforts, and she would win one more. Posthumously, she was awarded the Carnegie Medal, the highest civilian honor of heroism provided to those who have risked their lives to save others. Five separate funeral services for lives senselessly lost. Survivors were still in a state of disbelief, and the small city of Annapolis, Maryland, hadn't stopped reeling. They begged for answers. The community continued to ask the reverberating question of why. Capital Gazette staff members Celine Sanfeliz and Phil Davis expressed their frustrations to the media in regard to the legal system's ongoing delays in the case. They wanted and deserved more than just thoughts and prayers. They demanded justice. I appreciate the prayers. I was praying the entire time I was under that desk. I want your prayers, but I want something else. I was praying when he started reloading that shotgun that there weren't going to be more bodies. And you know what? If we're at a position in our society where all we can offer each other is prayers, then where are we? On June 29, 2021, Ramos's trial would finally begin, approximately three years and one day after the shootings. The defense argued throughout their case that Ramos's Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments had been violated when psychiatric professionals hired by the state were used to evaluate his mental health. The state concluded during these interviews that Ramos was not insane, nor did he have OCD, autism, or a delusional disorder, as the defense originally claimed, but rather that he was a perfectionist in crafting a master plot to kill. The prosecution's evidence of premeditation and planning far outweighed any substantiated argument the defense could counter with. The state presented the chilling steps Ramos had taken for years to set his plan into motion. In fact, just days before the murder, he purchased a lifetime U.S. chess club membership for $1,500. This showed intent and that he was planning to be locked away preparing a hobby for a lifetime behind bars. He also sold his Honda Fit to CarMax for $4,000, rented a Kia Rio, and parked the vehicle on a side street next to the office building the night before the massacre. This showed Ramos's clear objective to escape and evade police once the shooting was finished. It was that same evening he barricaded the back door, which Celine Sanfeliz and Anthony Messenger attempted to escape from. Ramos also withdrew all of the cash from his bank account. Veterinarian documents and personal writings of Ramos's were found in his apartment. These documents were also presented at trial, indicating that Ramos waited until his cat died from cancer before carrying out the attack, again showing the calculated arrangements he had taken before committing the murders. Before his capture, it was presented to the jury that Ramos shot and killed five people. He then proceeded to log into Twitter one last time, using a MacBook Pro belonging to one of the Capital Gazette staff members that he found in the office. In the moments just before his surrender, Jared Ramos used the computer to post one last tweet, which read as follows. You, leave me alone. The prosecution presented that these were actions of a coherent man who was collected and level-headed enough to log into someone else's computer and successfully send one last message to the world via the internet. Besides the years of constant threats, letters, tweets, and emails to the Capital Gazette staff, it was also revealed in court that Ramos had actually sent four more letters to the Capitol office the morning of the shootings. These letters, again, pertained to his bitterness of the defamation lawsuit's outcome and the 2011 article. While Ramos was being held in detention, he told a psychologist, quote, If by some miracle I was let out, I don't know what I would do. I would kill more people and come back again. He continued by stating, Planning this attack was the best years of my life. Ramos would also confess that his only failure in this barbaric act was that he had only killed five people 
and not all 11 who were present in the newsroom that day. On September 28, 2021, after a swift conviction, Jared W. Ramos would be sentenced. He was given five life terms to be served in the Department of Corrections, plus an additional 345 years without the possibility of parole. He never once showed any signs of remorse, never uttering a single word throughout the trial. As Ramos was hauled away, never to see the light of day again, family members of the victims gathered outside the courtroom to address the media in regards to the finality of this case. I think when people talk about the five victims of this violent crime, um, you can look around and see there's a lot more than five. It ripples all over the county, the state, and the country. There are a lot of people who couldn't be here today because they have to choke on their own words when they talk about this horrific crime. No, no, no. Those were the words of a victim who did not survive. She asked to stay alive long enough to see the five-year-old that was waiting for her at home. She didn't make it. The crime was monstrous. Seven long years. Jared Ramos was on the Annapolis Police Department's radar for seven years. From 2011 to 2018, this man left a digital footprint beyond comprehension, making constant threats and alluding to eventual physical harm on the Capital Gazette news staff. The people of Annapolis, Maryland, rightfully wanted answers. Could and should this tragedy have been prevented? Here's Police Chief Captain Timothy Altamari answering a local reporter who had that very same question. He's been threatening this paper for years. Should the police have done more? Uh, I, I don't think that you can say the police should have done more. We had one incident that's documented with us. It was fully documented. It was investigated. The management of the paper at the time, who I believe was Mr. Marquardt, uh, and my investigators uh, in, in 2013 came to a shared conclusion that carrying action further might exacerbate the situation. You asked a question about was he on the radar. So certainly that that encounter put him on radar. But you also asked about social media. And I have to tell you that policing in America really has taken a step backward when we lost Geofedia, which was the collator of information that we had to search social media sites. So it's tough for us to keep up with everybody. What Police Chief Timothy Altamari is referring to here is Bill HB 240, a law passed in Maryland on May 30th, 2021. The bill establishes restrictions on police using genealogy websites such as Ancestry.com to obtain access to expansive DNA databases, which have aided in countless criminal convictions in recent years. While this Privacy Act certainly would be considered a step backward in successful police investigations, as Altamari had stated, it wouldn't apply to the case of Jared Ramos in the slightest. Ramos left a digital paper trail that surely would have warranted probable cause for an arrest over the span of seven whole years. Yet, the only criminal record Ramos ever had on file was the misdemeanor harassment charge which sparked this whole incident back in 2011. That charge, incidentally, was later expunged from his record altogether in 2013. Jared Ramos essentially spelled out for police what he was going to do, and then he did it. Authorities had years to take actions against this man, but never once did. Police Chief Altamari retired from the police force just before Ramos's sentencing on August 1, 2021. Four months after the shooting took place in October of 2018, Maryland's red flag law was passed. The bill prohibits gun ownership or the purchase of firearms to any individual deemed a risk to themselves or others. However, only blood relatives, spouses, health professionals, or law enforcement can request these, quote, extreme risk protective orders. Ramos legally purchased the firearm that was used in the shooting back in 2017. Maryland currently has one of the most strict gun policies in the entire nation and leads most states in the application of the red flag law. 
Unfortunately, this bill came too little too late for the victims who lost their lives that day. We won't spend too much time in telling you who Jared Ramos was as a person before all of this happened. One thing we can agree with Police Chief Altamari on is that this individual does not deserve any further recognition. We will say, however, that this man was in fact a nobody, quite literally and actually. When teachers and former classmates were asked about Ramos, almost no one remembered him. Lori, of course, being one of them when she first received that message on Facebook from him several years before. Perhaps this was Ramos' way of getting back at a world that simply saw through him. Perhaps, in his eyes, gunning down five people with no connection to him whatsoever was the only way he'd ever make a mark in the world when he simply could not in any other facet of his pathetic personal life. Although he was intelligent, that by no means makes him any less of a loser. And a game of chess may be the only thing he ever wins as he rots away behind razor wire lined concrete walls for the rest of his life. Who we will instead focus on are the victims, one in particular being the youngest to die as a result of this tragedy, Rebecca Smith. She was just 34 years old and was the same victim whose last words were, quote, no, 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 just before Gerald Ramos opened fire on the Capitol Gazette newsroom. We're thankful to have been able to speak with her sister, Cindy Rittenauer, in this exclusive interview. Cindy is still dealing with the great loss of her sister and best friend. I'm Cindy Rittenauer. I'm 29 years old and I'm from Fredericksburg, Virginia. We wanted to know who Rebecca Smith was as a person, and who better to ask than one of the people she was closest with, her sister Cindy. We were very close. We never really lived together. We've always lived in different states. My mom had Becca when she was very young. She was 16 when she had Becca. She felt that she couldn't give her what she needed in, in life at the time, being 16 years old. So my grandparents kind of took on the role to raise her. But, you know, we spent holidays together. We spent Christmas. We spent Halloween. It's not something that really kept us apart. We had a lot of time to communicate with each other with Facebook and we texted almost every day. She was the highlight of any time that I had. Any, any chance that I got, the only thing I wanted to do was to go up and, and visit her. She was the most supportive and helpful person that I had in my life. She was right there helping me, whether it was giving me a, you know, kick in the ass to keep going if I was slacking off or anything else. I mean, she was right there, just like any other older sister. She was always motivated. She was always driven and she knew what she wanted to do. She knew she wanted to go into marketing. She loved everything about reporting. Like she loved everything about it. When it came time for her to go to the paper, I know that Becca was really scared. Rebecca wasn't scared for the reason any of us would think. It wasn't because a crazed man had been making threats to her new place of employment, but rather because she was dealing with debilitating health issues. Me and her both suffer from endometriosis, and she was a really big advocate on getting out the correct information because a lot of people are misinformed about the disease. She wanted to get more people talking about it. So she was actually going to see if she could get her own column in the paper or she was gonna write her own little journal about endometriosis. Endometriosis is a painful disorder which complicates a woman's menstrual cycle often creating physical lesions inside and sometimes outside of the uterine wall. It's fairly common and believed that up to 11% of women may have some form of the disease, yet it is often misdiagnosed and can greatly affect one's quality of everyday life. I remember when she thought that she was going to lose her job at the paper because of her endometriosis. It was too much for her, like she could barely function. I, mean, I remember her vesting me and she was like, I'm, I'm scared to lose my job. She's like, I don't want to keep having to look for jobs because I can't show up to work because she's in pain or she has to go to the hospital again. I mean, she suffered a lot, but she kept pushing through. 
Like she didn't let any of it stop her. And that's one of the things that I really admired about her was like her determination. She wanted to go to work every day. She wanted to do the things she wanted to do and she wasn't gonna let something that would normally have people in bed all day she never let it stop her, but she did miss a decent amount of work and she ended up in the hospital quite a few times. Both Rebecca, or Becca, as Cindy affectionately refers to her by, had both been diagnosed with endometriosis. The two bonded through their shared struggle in overcoming the disorder, undergoing treatment simultaneously. One of the milestones that I didn't have Becca there for, while going through both of our treatments, we both went through a Lupron Depot treatment, which is like a low form of chemo that you inject into your body. And what it does is it puts you in menopause and you have to deal with all these side effects. And Becca, unfortunately, was taken from me about three months into our treatments. So I went through all of that until eventually I had to have a full hysterectomy at 27. I mean, we were messing each other every day about it. We were telling each other each other's symptoms. Like, not only was she checking up on me, which she checked up on me every day, and I checked up on her, but she also was trying to write down all these experiences because she wanted people to get the information. Cindy remembers her sister being her biggest support system, as she was for Rebecca. While the two tried to navigate through this difficult time together, they always knew that they had one another to lean on. All she really wanted was to flourish in her career, but she also wanted to live life at the same time. She really was career driven, but she also didn't want to miss out on anything in life. When Becca started having all these health issues, all that kind of got put behind. So I don't think she ever really got to figure out where exactly she wanted to end up. Cindy explains how the disorder affected Rebecca's life to the point of missing days of work due to her constant state of physical pain, ongoing treatments, and multiple surgeries. Cindy will always remember the day of the shooting as the one time she truly wished Rebecca hadn't made it into the office. After learning that Jared Ramos had been making threats to the paper for the better part of seven years, we asked Cindy Rittenauer if Rebecca had any knowledge of this man prior. We wanted to know if Rebecca's colleagues had ever expressed any concern to the rest of the staff in regards to what this individual might be capable of. No, I had never heard of this person before. I never heard of anything about his intentions or, or letters or anything. I don't know if it was just because she never wanted me to worry. That was the type of person that she was, she she never wanted me to worry about her. It, it could be that, or it could be, you know, she really didn't know because she was only with the paper for, you know, seven months. Cindy goes on to tell us about where she was when she heard the news of the shooting, a day she will most assuredly never forget. I was actually at work. We were severely understaffed. There was only about four of us in the restaurant. We were we were slammed. I had gotten a call from my brother and they're like, hey, your brother's on the phone. Can you go talk to him? I was like, okay, weird for him to call my work. He never does. So I was like, hey, what's, what's going on? He's like, hey, I just want to let you know that Becca's work was shut up today. From his understanding, he thought that she was in shock. He misheard. You know, this type of information isn't easy to really sink in because Becca didn't die at the paper. She died later on in the hospital, but he thought that she was okay. He said he didn't really know much, but he wanted me to know before anybody else could tell me. I was like, thanks, but I really got to go. I'm in a lot of pain. There's only four of us here. We're really busy. I was like, I'll call you when I get off of work. So I said, I love you. And then we hung up the phone and then I went straight back to work. Before I got off, it was interesting because I found a Ravens football team fidget spinner and I thought that was interesting I was like I can't wait to tell Becca about this you know after I get off of work that'll be just something neat to tell her when the day was finally over I look at my phone and I see all these messages and it's like hey are you okay are you all right I'm like what's everybody talking about so somebody told me to call my uncle and so I called him I was like what's going on and he was like yeah Becca died uh tonight and then I just started screaming because I, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know how to feel. I just I just became numb. Obviously, I didn't, want, I didn't want any of it to be true. I was like, this can't be happening. My brother, we couldn't get a hold of him. I remember trying to call him. We finally got a hold of him. And he made it back to my dad's house where we all went. And I just ran and I grabbed him. And he was crying. And then I ended up shoving all of my feelings back. 
because I wanted to make sure that he was okay. I didn't want to be the one broken down and not making sure that he was good. You know, he was good to drive, good to go home. He needed he needed his family. And I just remember not really wanting to face the truth. We certainly all grieve differently. Cindy expressed to us the importance she felt in remaining strong for her family and helping them cope when they needed her the most. And while her main focus was on supporting her loved ones at that time, she confessed that she'd bottled up her own emotions for months, never getting the chance to properly deal with the loss of her beloved sister. Nearly a year later, Cindy finally broke down and decided to take a month's leave from work in April following the attack. We asked her opinion if she thought this man should have been paid closer attention to by law enforcement, and if perhaps police let this violent offender inadvertently slip through the cracks. That's a really hard question. I feel like there's two sides to this. I think that he definitely should have been investigated, you know, writing letters for, what was it, seven years or something like that? Like you have seven years worth of threats. And I would understand if it was like in the beginning, you know, this person's just angry because a lot of people will say stuff like that when they're not actually going to do something. You wouldn't think that somebody would actually really be thinking like this and actually really wanting to kill anybody. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think somebody would actually want to do that. But when you come up with specific names, when you go that far and if for that many years, I really think that it should have been investigated. I think at that point, when it started to become years, instead of just at that current time, you check in on them. Cindy goes on to tell the story of her last time spent in person with her sister, Rebecca. They met up to watch Becca's favorite football team one Sunday to enjoy a Baltimore Ravens game. We met up at Buffalo Wild Wings. So that was the time that I physically seen her. So we sat down and we actually really didn't watch anything because she just couldn't stop staring at me. She was asking me a whole bunch of stuff about my life, everything about me. And I just went on. I was like, yeah, you don't need to worry about me. I'm okay. And the only thing that she could say was, you're just like me. She always called me her mini-me because she always said at every step in life, I acted the exact same way as she did. She was my motivation in life. When I was in elementary school, I wrote papers about her because I always admired her. While they were miles apart, the two sisters remained close as ever through means of digital communication. Cindy recalls the last time she ever spoke with Rebecca via text message on June 28, 2018 the very morning of the shooting. I texted her that morning because she had gotten her second Lupron shot that morning. She was in a lot of pain. It, it takes a lot out on you. When you initially get the shot, you get a wave of nausea. You're in pain. You feel weak. She wasn't really feeling it, but she pushed on. And part of me wished that, you know, she didn't, you know, well, a lot of me wished that she had just stayed home and rested that day. A lot of me did. Due to the complications of her endometriosis, Rebecca was unable to have children of her own. Even with this being the case, she never let that stop her from loving her fiancé's daughter, who she cherished like one of her own. He had a daughter which she loved as her own kid. And the kid loved her. She wanted a family of her own. But with the endometriosis, it made her infertile. But, you know, she had two loving parents and she was uh she always called herself a bonus mom she was like he's like you know I'm, I'm i'm an addition she she never wanted to take away from from her birth mother ever but i think that she also wanted that that feeling of you know i'm i'm your mom type of type of feel like that that different that different feeling that you can get that's how she was with anybody she always welcomed people with open arms and she was always positive this sort of positive outlook on parenting is just one testament of Rebecca's true compassionate and loving character. Cindy tells us that the most important thing to her sister's legacy is that she's remembered as such and that she was so much more than just another victim of a senseless tragedy. I don't want her to be remembered as a victim of a shooting. I don't want her to be just that person that that was shot. I want her to be remembered as a human being, as a person who lived, who, you know, were sarcastic, who was funny, who loved everybody, loved life. And I, I don't want that taken, I don't want that taken away from her. Like, I, I don't, because then he gets what he wants. I don't want her being defined by that. So when you reached out to me, I was just straight on. I was like, yep, I'm on board. 
It all began with a story entitled, Jared Wants to Be Your Friend, a reflective piece of journalism that highlighted the false sense of intimacy social media affords those looking to connect with others online. But in actuality, it began long before that. In those late-night moments between direct messages, when a delusional man interpreted a woman's simple, friendly responses as meaning something more. The rest, as they say, is history. But in a case spanning seven long years of predictably foul and threatening harassment, we're left wondering one thing. Should you really ever accept a friend request, whether from an acquaintance or someone claiming to be one, if you do not actually truly know that person as a friend? We'll leave that one up to you.